Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun. It's our weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with experts from AccuWeather and from around the world, bringing you behind-the-scenes information, stories, and news on the weather, climate change, and the outdoors, covering topics from the worlds of science, sports, and space. It's all the information you need to weatherproof your life. And now, here's the host of Everything Under the Sun, AccuWeather meteorologist, Dean DeVore. Welcome in, friends, to episode three of our spring series. Now, again, if you're just joining us on this podcast, the disconnect is meteorological spring started at the beginning of March, but calendar spring starts this weekend. We'll flip the calendar to spring on Sunday morning, 1133 Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Certainly uh, that daylight savings time situation made news this week with the Senate passing unanimously a plan to keep daylight savings time continuous. And uh, certainly that's something I think we're going to be delving into here on this podcast in the coming weeks whether that's the right idea is it right to keep it the same in standard time or do we need to change it like we've been over the past decades and hundreds of years friends we'll talk about that but this week we're going to talk about bugs as we crawl out of winter and get into spring bugs and insects are starting to crawl around in our yards and homes and gardens we're going to talk with uh, an expert on what to do to prepare and of course the big ticket insect item of the spring news cycle has been that big bad Joro spider. We'll find out everything we need to know about that. We'll also take a look up in the sky with our friend Brian Leda. A lot of things going on. Planetary conjunctions, a black moon, and an eclipse, a lunar eclipse coming up next month. That's uh, a look at the spring, early spring situation in terms of the heavens and the skies. And Paul Paslock will be along at the end of the podcast to talk about the upcoming weather for the weekend ahead and the week beyond and it looks like next week could be a very stormy one friends sit back and relax as it's time to talk about everything under the sun from accuweather.com last year it was the 17-year cicada that caught everyone's fancy this year it is the joro spider which has got a lot of news play as we're going to see more and more spread of this phenomenon a spider that came to us from other places and is now starting to be prevalent in parts of the southeast united states Uh, we wanted to enlist an expert and one of my favorite guests here on everything under the sun has been dr jim fredericks he is the chief entomologist for the National Pest Management Association. They have an amazing website called pestworld.org. And Jim has been joining us uh, over the last couple of years and has some really great insight. As we start to see the bugs around us start to get more active, especially for those of us uh, farther up in the northern part of the United States that have been dealing with winter, there's some things that we should be planning for, termites season and all that kind of stuff. And then What about that big, bad Joro spider? Dr. Jim Fredericks joins us on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Jim, it's good to have you back with us. Um, You know, it seems like when we do this every spring, we have a big ticket item to talk about. And one of them is that uh, Joro spider. And we'll get to talking about that here in a bit. But before we do that, 
Uh, Jim, it is really a, a situation where it catches up to you. I was outside doing some stuff, um, cleaning up the last vestiges of that snow yuck that we had just a couple of uh, just in the last week here in State College. And, you know, we've had some warm spells already this late winter and early spring. I've seen flying insects, which kind of caught me off guard because you, know, you get into that winter period where you don't see them up where we are in zone six here in, in Pennsylvania and stuff. But, you know, already starting to see flies and uh, one of our colleagues here on the floor just said he saw a wasp already this uh, late winter, early spring. So things are moving. And, and I wanted to talk in some generalities as we get ready for spring in earnest here as we change the calendar this weekend, some things we can do. And, and one of the things that I think you and the National Pest Management Association has come up with on your great site, pestworld.org, is what you call vector sectors. These are kind of areas of the country that may have some specific issues with pests based on the way the weather and the climate was. And one I saw in New York, especially, especially around New York City, we had a warm fall and early winter. I mean, temperatures five, six degrees above average in most of December. And then it just flipped. January and February were extremely cold and very wintry, and it forced a lot of those animals and pests that were able to be outside longer in December scurrying for a place to nest and be protected from the cold over the winter. And so you might not have thought about it, but you might be dealing with some of that here in the early spring. Uh, that's just one of those things to think about this time of year, right? That's right, Dean. And thanks for having me back on. You know, when we think about pests, uh, you know, a lot of times we don't always think about the weather, right? And the the weather uh, has, a, has a big impact on, on pest behavior, insect behavior in general, but oftentimes um, our folks are, are focused on pests. And so when you have these extended, uh, you know, warmer weather periods, like we saw in certain parts of the country uh, last fall, it's a longer season for these, uh, these pests to continue to, to thrive and reproduce and for populations to build as they go into the winter. Now, as the cold weather approaches, then they, they're looking for shelter. Different, different pests have different strategies for making it through the winter. Some die. Some seek shelter indoors, mm -hmm. um, but uh, but what we do know is when those populations are large going into that cold weather, uh, there's a greater number that survive through for the spring, and so that's what we'll be facing coming up now. And and one of those might be the tick population, which certainly starts to pick up this time of year. Um, and, you know, one of your vector sectors was Cleveland, warmer than average temperatures there throughout the winter, covered with sunny days, increased tick activity. So that's something. And I'm reading now about a new tick borne disease that uh, is a little bit different than Lyme disease, but could be problematic. Is that something that I picked up on here? Uh, just kind of glancing at the news in the last week or so. Tick borne disease is, re is really an important problem. Um, oftentimes people uh, don't think of these, you know, quote unquote pests, whether it's ticks or mosquitoes or even cockroaches or, or rodents as being important public health pests. And they are. And so when we think about, you know, Lyme disease is the most is the is the number one reported arthropod borne disease in the U.S., and they believe it's underreported. And so I agree. Uh, yeah. I, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, outside playing disc golf. And I know my friends and I, we were constantly finding them on us. And uh, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of the people that are just chalking up and now with COVID too, with not feeling well and all kinds of things. I mean, it's hard to determine which is it. So I think I, I agree. I think a lot of people may have been affected by that and, and don't even realize it at this point. 
Could be. And, you know, so, you know, when it comes to ticks, as soon as that temperature gets up above 50 degrees, ticks are going to be active. They're going to be actively searching for food. And the food is oftentimes us. Once the, when the temperatures are cold, they're going to be inactive. But even throughout the winter on a warm day, uh, you'll get tick activity. So this is this is now the time where your people are spending more time in their yards. They're, you know, getting out on a hike. They're enjoying the beautiful weather when it occurs. And so important, can't stress it enough to make sure that you're wearing repellent. And you're doing a tick check when you get home at the end of the day. Yeah, and then the tick issue that I'm I'm reading, like Seattle's another place to think about that. Uh, also, Minneapolis, uh, Denver ticks are something that you got to think about. Uh, Los Angeles, heavy precipitation combined with warmer temperatures may have allowed mosquitoes to remain active longer into the season than previous years. So uh, it's another place where we have to think about pests and and maybe mitigating that. And is uh, some place that certainly you only think about. Earthquakes, not necessarily mosquitoes, uh, the Los Angeles Basin. <laughs> For sure. Um, you know, any place that we're going to have, um, when, when we see heavy precipitation, we start to get standing water, uh, even for short periods of time, uh, our minds should be going directly to mosquitoes and mosquito prevention. Um, naturally, we, you know, when we think about mosquitoes, we hear some big headline uh, mosquito-borne diseases, malaria, um, internationally, not so, not of course in the United States, but certainly West West Nile virus is an important mosquito-borne disease. And so, to reduce standing water around the house, even small amounts, making sure as you go out this spring and start to do some of that yard cleanup that there's not you know leftover. Maybe it's uh, some toys, some kids' toys out there that might collect water. Maybe it's some old flower pots that blew around all winter place that people often forget is the gutters. Make sure your gutters are cleaned out this spring because any uh, any clogs or areas where water can stand up in the gutters, that can be a mosquito breeding place that you wouldn't even see normally. Uh, so it takes some time to think about where can water collect as we go, go into the spring because as soon as those temperatures uh, start to rise, the mosquitoes will be flying and they will be looking for food. We're talking with uh, Dr. Jim Fredericks uh, from the National Pest Management Association. He's their chief entomologist and vice president of technical and regulatory affairs. Went to um, Millersville University and then uh, got his master's and doctorate at the University of Delaware and uh, grew up in uh, Philadelphia and now lives down outside the D.C. area where uh, things are warming up quickly. And we're all been uh, kind of teased by this story about a big, bad spider that likes to move. His name is Joro. And I know the pictures have kind of struck fear in people who aren't real happy about spiders in their own regard. The fact that he's big and bright and also can move. What, he can fly a little bit? Talk a little bit about the Joro spider. And is it something that we uh, should be concerned about? And where do we need to be concerned about him? The Joro spider is really an interesting uh, an interesting story. And uh, I understand people in general don't like spiders. Arachnophobia, right, is one of the, you know, the, the top phobias that people report. But I am here to tell you that the fears that people have about giant spiders raining from the skies probably a little bit overblown, um, but I can... You mean like Sharknado and all that kind of stuff? It might be a little bit of fantasy to that? Well, a little, well there's there's fact behind that fantasy, though. So okay. there's been some, right. some uh, you know, the, the Juro spider was um, first found in the United States almost 10 years ago, about 2014. Uh, it showed up in Georgia. Not sure exactly how it arrived, but probably on a shipping container from Asia, where they're 
fairly widespread. Over the past uh, 10 years, or what is it? It's eight years now. The, uh, that spider has spread to 25 counties and is, is slowly spreading about 10 miles a year. And it spreads by hitchhiking onto containers, onto vehicles, onto you know, things moving around. But it does this interesting thing that many spiders do called ballooning. Mm. And, uh, and this is what has been described as parachuting, ballooning. And what happens is when those, uh, those baby spiders are first, first hatched out of the egg, they're, they're tiny, tiny, right. tiny little spiders. And they'll, um, they'll release a, a small strand of silk. That silk catches an air current and those spiders can move. They call it ballooning along air currents for 10, 50, maybe even further miles away from where they hatched. And this allows those those spiders to spread away from that location where that, where they've hatched. So it won't be like it's a mass of 50 spiders all in this big convoy and parachuting in like they're going to take over your, your world. But at that point, when it's that little gym, is it too small for us even to really see or notice? Or is it something that we could notice? If they'll, that be, they'll be hard to notice when they're just ballooning in. When you'll, when you'll first start to see, um, and this is, this is common for most spiders. We, we typically are going to see spiders when they're at their, their, largest, their largest part of their life cycle. And that's going to be the end of summer into the early fall. So they've had all year to grow. So these spiderlings, which is really a great name for baby spider spiderlings, are hatching out um, in the spring. That's when they'll catch on to air currents and move away from their hatch site. It turns out that if they don't move, it's a little bit of survival of the fittest. And those other spiderlings will be eating their brothers and sisters. And so <laughs> it's a good idea to spread out and get a little elbow room. Um, so they won't be raining down as large adult spiders and they won't be uh, necessarily raining down, uh, you know, all across the Eastern seaboard board right away. The, some recent research out of Georgia is showing that the Juro spider actually is capable of surviving further away from uh, some of its some of its related species in the southeast. So they know it will survive in the southeast, and it has. Um, but what this recent research is showing that it's, it is able to complete its life cycle in a shorter window, which okay. allows it to um, take advantage of, uh, you know, the spring and summer months that may be shorter and more northern climates. Sure. And they're also able to withstand some uh, brief cold snaps, uh, in fact, some freezing snaps that will allow it to expand its range even further than some similar species in the southeast. So eventually, yes, right away, uh, maybe not. Maybe as far north as North Carolina this year into Virginia. And I saw some reports of possibility, like you get up to southern Delaware or parts of the Delmarva. Is is that too far north or where do we think? If some spiderlings were to catch the right air current, they could certainly travel hundreds of miles. However, you have to keep in mind that a single spiderling needs to be close to um, another spiderling of the opposite sex right. in order to have a sustaining population. And so what happens is the further out away from that hatch point, mm -hmm. the odds are reduced. And so, right. Um, because they may go somewhere, but then not find a, a mate to match and, and, sure, and exactly. keep the colony going. Right. And, and it's also important to note, I think in the past, you know, almost 10 years that this spider has been in the U S it has spread at an average rate of about 10 miles a year. Okay. Uh, so north, south, east, and west, just kind of spreading out from that initial point. And so 
we should expect a similar expansion rate in the future. Now they they are big. The the females are bigger than the males. The probably kind of like the size of your palm, right? Is that is that about right for a female Joral at adulthood? The females are just absolutely beautiful animals. They are um, a lo- the the body this, itself. This from the doctor of entomology, friends. That oh, you know, they're amazing. He's a beautiful animal. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, they, the rest of us are running for fear, Jim. Right now, no reason to have fear. Um, the the body itself is about an inch long. Okay. Uh, the uh, the abdomen uh, is going to be uh, you know yellow and bluish gray with bluish gray bands on the bottom side of the abdomen. Uh, yellow with an intricate pattern of, of blue and gray markings with with big red marking as well. So striking the legs or uh, long legs with uh, uh, black legs with yellow bands. And the, although the body size is about an inch, the legs when they're spread out can be four inches. So wow. yeah, you're talking about the size of your palm. We see some similar large spiders called garden spiders mm-hmm. um, uh, throughout the eastern seaboard for sure. And they're large uh, black and yellow spiders. Black and yellow, yep. Big web with a zigzag pattern. That's mm-hmm. the common garden spider. Okay. But that's a big one. But those legs may be only two and a half inch uh, span. Right. So we're talking about a four inch leg span. Real long legs, pretty big spider, and striking. Thin legs, though, not tarantula, thick, hairy legs. It's more of like spindly legs and stuff like that. And in terms of the bite, their their mandibles, I don't think they can't get through human skin, right? So, And they're, they're really not wanting to bite you, and they're not poisonous to humans, right? right. They're, they're poisonous to other animals, obviously, because that's how they eat and kill their stuff in their webs. But, you know, this is not one unless... It's not going to bite you unless you provoke it, step on it, sit on it, or do something like that, probably. So, um, you know, the number one question I get about spiders when someone shows me a spider and they want to know what in the world it is, or uh, they, they want to know, is it is it venomous? Is it dangerous? And my short answer is, when they ask me if it's venomous, is yes, all spiders are venomous. However, only a very few spiders, at least in the U.S., are medically important or are dangerous to us. Um, that would be black widow spider, brown recluse right. spiders. Brown, brown recluse, yep. And so, like you said, this spider uh, is venomous, um, but that venom is really only going to be dangerous to, you know, things like a, a cricket or a fly or whatever else it happens to be catching in that web. Um, not dangerous to us. It wouldn't, um, you know, any bite if one did occur and they have no interest in biting us, you know, wouldn't feel, wouldn't be more than a bee sting. Um, And these bites are, would be extremely uncommon as are most spider bites. I guess even a bigger question to me is, as this takes hold even more, and it will, I mean, there's just no doubt about it now. Is it going to be uh, having any effect on other species, whether other insect species that are native to the United States or other animals? Are we going to see not direct biting, dying, that kind of something, but more deleterious effects on the ecosystems around the Joro spider here as we go over the next several years? Is there concerns about that? That's a great uh, question. You know, whenever we have an exotic introduction in exotic animal, whether it's an insect or it's bird or whatever it is, there's always a concern about displacing native species or other um, negative impacts on the ecosystem, right? Because it's, it's not a, um, a, it's not a species that, that has evolved in that system. 
all signs at this point, there, I should, let me put it this way. There is no evidence right now um, that this spider is having any negative effects in the range that it exists right now. All signs at this point point to it's not going to have any larger effects, uh, which is really good news. Yeah. So instead, we can just you know count on it to just like any other beneficial spider to maybe take care of some of those flying insects and and be a beneficial predator in our in our vegetable gardens and and everywhere else. And if you're not real scared, it can be fun to look at and watch it watch it work in in the garden and the in the stuff as well. We're talking with Dr. Jim Fredericks from the National Pest Management Association, pestworld.org. It's a treasure trove, friends, of uh, information on about things that you need to do. And then from that point, too, if you need to find a professional to take care of a problem, um, that's where you can do it as well. And, And I think that's important, Jim, especially this time of year. If you don't catch something and you, in other words, if you see something that's a small problem on the outside, you better make sure it's not a bigger problem on the inside, especially in terms of termites. And this is a, we're getting to that time of the year when termites are going to get really active and really hungry themselves. So this is the time of year, like, do not assume that you can see everything and you know everything that's going on when you see evidence of some kind of pest and termite situation. Is that good advice? Dean, that's great advice. In fact, we're coming on the heels of our annual termite awareness week. Because uh, spring is the time to think about termites. And, sp- and unfortunately, spring is the time that people often realize they have termites, even after an infestation has, has been in place for a while. The, the reason that spring is, a, is an important time for uh, termite detection is that this is when we'll see flying termites, swarmers, uh, often confused with flying ants. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's often an indication that an infestation is uh, or a population is large enough to spread. Um, oftentimes a colony won't swarm until it's been in place for three, four, five years. And if they're swarming inside your house, that means that there's probably been some damage done. Well, great advice, great things to talk about. We'll be uh, watching this Juro spider situation and everything else. You're uh, always one of our favorite guests here on Everything Under the Sun. And we uh, hope to talk to you again soon, Jim, to, you know, as we get maybe a little bit longer into spring and summer about some of the other things as we get later on, uh, mosquitoes and then bees, wasps, those things, uh, maybe some things that we can do to mitigate that. But uh, all eyes on ticks and rodents that are going to be moving in and also the termite season this time of year. And we'll see. Uh, everything else under the sun in terms of insects. Jim, thanks for being with us here this day. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can follow Jim on Twitter. It's his name backwards. Last name first, first name last, all one word, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K-S-J-I-M. Frederick's Jim on Twitter. And the National Pest Management Association is also on Twitter. It's National Pest MGT, or you can do a lookup for NPMA. You'll be able to find that Twitter handle. All the great information that we talked about there. We thank Jim again for being with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about two subjects. One with Brian Leda. We're going to look up in the sky with the planets and the moon taking center stage with some amazing things going on there. Paul Pastelock will talk about a busy weekend in the northeast and also in the west with some storminess and then a big storm trucking through the middle of the country all week next week that's coming up next this is everything under the sun from accuweather.com
Plan your day with confidence and find out what the weather means for you. Join AccuWeather meteorologist Bernie Reno Monday through Friday for Weather Insider. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun here from AccuWeather.com as we uh, talked about bugs and insects in our first opening Rays of Focus segment. We're going to turn our attention to a couple of things. First, uh, we're going to talk astronomy in the skies with AccuWeather meteorologist Brian Leda, who is here. Uh, Brian's a curator of all things astronomy from AccuWeather. You see his articles on our AccuWeather.com website and our AccuAstronomy Twitter feed. And Brian, I know uh, with the days getting longer, nights getting a little bit shorter, there's still been some amazing things in the sky as we've been looking at it. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things that we're seeing. I think one of the things that I've enjoyed, Brian, in the early morning skies over the last several weeks is that sentinel that Venus has been brightly shining in that eastern sky. In fact, as the sun's been coming up, I've been trying to see how long can I see Venus with the with the brighter skies and then, then just kind of get a little bit sad when Venus goes away, but it's back the next morning. And so not only Venus, but as we go through these late March weeks, there's going to be a trio of planets that kind of bunch together some more uh, things to look in the sky with a, a conglomeration of planets together. Let's talk a little bit about that aspect of the skies in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, Venus is sometimes called the morning star because of how bright it is in the morning hours. And it's kind of the guide to what's going to be happening later this month with Saturn and Mars coming close by. The tight bunch of the three planets is going to be best seen on March 31st, but it's not a one-night event. The, the mornings leading up to that and the ones after are going to be a great time to look for Venus, Saturn, and Mars Venus is the brightest of the three, and then Saturn and Mars are going to be off to the right. And that's going to be about an hour before sunrise. And then looking ahead into the start of April, April 4th and 5th is actually going to be a great time to look for them too, because Saturn and Mars are going to be incredibly close to each other. So if you have the energy at that time in the morning to set up a <laughs> telescope and you focus on those planets, they're going to be so close that they're going to be in the same field of view as a telescope. Which wow. It's an amazing sight to see. It only happens yeah. very rarely in the night sky. You know, that's one of those where you really, it's a good time to have the, the telescope set up and ready. And then just when you uh, get that clearing in the morning to, to, to try to take a look at it. I, I've seen that phenomenon a couple of times and it's, it is rare, but it is gorgeous. So um, some great things there. The planets, uh, we've got our first uh, meteor shower of April. Uh, first one that uh, a lot of people talk about, April 21st, 22nd, the Lyrid meteor shower is up next in the meteor shower parade. And how are we expecting that to appear in the skies this year? So the Lyrids is kind of a run-of-the-mill shower. We get about 15 to 20 meteors per hour. But the big takeaway is that it's the first meteor shower since the second night of January. We kind of have a lull in astronomy events throughout the winter months. So the Lyrids is kind of like the comeback for meteor showers with 15 to 20 per hour. Best seen on the night of the 21st into the 22nd. You'll start to see some shooting stars right after it gets dark, but this year it's looking like the best window to view the meteor shower. It's going to be between midnight and 3 a.m. local time. Now, if you miss the Lyrids because of clouds or, you know, sleep schedule issue or whatever it may be, don't worry. We have another one coming up just two weeks later. The Ada Aquarids on the night of May 4th into the 5th. Once again, us here in North America can expect about 10 to 30 meteors per hour. So the opportunity to see two meteor showers in two weeks. 
Pretty cool stuff there. Um, let's uh, work our way now to April 30th for an event. You know, we hear Blue Moon and, you know, we've spent some time on this podcast trying to educate people that, you know, it's not always about two full moons in a month being a blue moon. It's really you got to look at the quarter of three months. And if there's a fourth full moon in that quarter, that becomes a blue moon. We're going to go the opposite. We're going to talk about new moons. In other words, when the moon is completely dark to us on the ground. And if there's a fourth in a quarter or two in a month of new moons, we call that a black moon. And we've got one of those coming up on April 30th. New moons, they don't get the attention that the full moons do because you can't see a new moon. Right. During a new moon, the part of the moon that's illuminated by the sun is pointing away from the earth. So on April 30th, we're getting the second new moon in April. And that's like you said, a black moon, but even if you head outside, you won't be able to see it. However, this is still a great time for stargazing in general. You don't have the moon in the sky, so there's less light pollution. So if you're looking for a time to go to a local park or a dark sky area, the end of April is a great time to do so because the sky is going to be a lot darker than it would be during a full moon. And you might be able to see things like the Milky Way or even more stars than you've ever seen before. So then following that new moon on April 30th, the next full moon coming up May 15th and 16th will feature a total lunar eclipse. Where will we be able to see that, Brian? Yeah, so we got a preview of this lunar eclipse last November. If you remember, there was a pretty impressive partial lunar eclipse when 97% of the moon fell through Earth's dark inner shadow. Uh, this one, though, on May 15th to 16th, this is the big deal. This is the total lunar eclipse. It's going to be across all of North America. Around the East Coast, the best time to see it is going to be around midnight. For people along the West Coast, it's going to be around 9 p.m. So you don't need to be staying up super late at night to see this event. And this is just the first of two this year. So if you miss this one here in May, you have another opportunity to see a total lunar eclipse later on November 8th. And if you're lucky enough, you'll be able to see both of them. Sounds like some really exciting stuff here in the coming months of spring. Anything towards the end of spring and summer that you want to kind of just preview that we can talk about a little more in depth when we get together in a few weeks? So as we head into June, we actually have the return of a supermoon on June 14th. Ooh. Now, everyone loves this term, the supermoon. It's bigger and brighter than all the other ones throughout the year. But it, to me, it's just another full moon. It's just a fun nickname that we give to these moons. Uh, there is actually a definition behind a supermoon. It's a bit closer to the Earth than other full moons throughout the year. So it does appear a little bit bigger and a little bit brighter than normal. And we actually have three this year, back to back to back, uh, June, July, and August. So you miss one, you have more opportunities to see these supermoons and just a great time for stargazing in general because it the reason gets it's a lot of attention. It just it draws more attention to the night sky. Which yeah, is- I think so. And and again, the reason it appears bigger is it's a, it's a little closer. The 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 orbit of the moon around our earth is not a complete concentric circle. It's got uh, some closeness on the one side of the the orbit versus the other side, and it's more elliptical. So that's part of that. And uh, some of the great things that when you really go in depth and look at this stuff is really exciting and, and fun to watch. Brian, I really thank you and your staff and everybody that works on AccuAstronomy do a great job. Keep us up to date. I think, uh, as we've talked about the last couple of years, especially with people spending more time outside in their homes, this is the kind of stuff that uh, has been really popular for people to kind of glom onto and follow along. So thanks for all your work. Appreciate the visit today. And thanks for all you do on AccuWeather.com. Thanks for having me and happy stargazing. And from Brian Leda talking about the stars in the sky, let's now talk 
about the next several days, whether for the weekend ahead and the week beyond. And we bring in our chief long range forecaster, Paul Pastelock, who is here because we just talked to him, I know, a couple of weeks ago about the spring forecast. But as we officially turn the calendar to spring, um, let's uh, get a little update from him and talk about a setup for next week, Paul, that looks pretty prolific with a huge storm in the middle of the country. But we'll get there in a moment. Um, first of all, how are you doing? Everything good in the long range department? I know busy time of the year as you're working on the hurricane stuff and the tropical storm season stuff. Pretty easy time, right? Yeah, it would be easier if winter would quit early because uh, <laughs> yes, you get a combination for all of us, right? <laughs> you got winter, you got the severe weather season. People are are already looking ahead to summer. It's like everything getting thrown at you at the same time. All right, let's talk uh, uh, just uh, first of all about this weekend ahead. Um, it looks like, you know, if you're in the middle of the country, you've got the good stuff uh, all the way from uh, the northern plains to the southern plains. In fact, a nice uh, warm up, which will uh, feel actually mid to late spring like for places like uh, St. Louis by Sunday after a little chilly start. Um, you know, there's another system coming through that's going to give. A chilly rain uh, as we drop this forecast in Chicago, Detroit, uh, 40s, low 50s next couple of days, nighttime lows in the 30s. That rain could end as actually some snowflakes, Chicago and Detroit. And then mm -hmm. that rain comes up into and it's an interesting scenario um, coming into the day on Saturday. I think there could be some rumbles all the way up to New York City in the morning even. And then it looks like there's a pop of uh, possibly some strong to severe storms especially along that I-95 corridor up to New York City and those areas and down through Philly and down through Washington and Baltimore late in the day on Saturday, Paul, that uh, could uh, be some gusty winds and maybe some downpours in that area. Yeah, there's two parts to this as far as some strong storms go. The the I-95 setup is the, the winds aloft are lined up with the surface very good in directional sense. And so you could take some of, the, take some of that strong wind aloft and you get a kind of a downwind, downturn of the wind, right down to the surface can cause a pretty good wind gust as the squall line comes on through, like you said, later Saturday, Saturday evening. And then there's another area, Dean, closer to the upper level low track where central New York State, maybe over to eastern New York State, there could be another area of thunderstorms that forms that could produce maybe some small hail yeah. or some gusty winds there, too. As we drop this podcast on Friday, we've been seeing that in places like Missouri. Springfield got hit with some hail on Friday morning, and it looks like that cluster was heading towards um, St. Louis. And, and we're already seeing some thunder out ahead of that. So the rest of Friday into Friday evening could be thundery in places like uh, Detroit and Chicago, not severe weather there, but mm -hmm. there's a, there's energy in this atmosphere. And so as this thing pushes up into the eastern seaboard, it's going to be interesting. Um, the best news probably for folks as we turn the calendar to spring is really the only places in the eastern third of the country that see snow is probably far northern Maine with this system. Uh, the snow seems to be very far north in this system as that chilly air retreats here for a few days. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the more significant. I, I mean, there could be a few flakes and parts of higher elevations in northern Pennsylvania, western yeah. New York. But I mean, it, I don't think it's a big deal. Right. Um, but it, it'll feel chilly. I, yeah. I do feel behind the system, there'll be a downturn, especially if we see temperatures 
uh, to end the work week here <laughs> right. in the 60s and 70s, and then you're down back in the 40s and lower 50s. Uh, it's, it's the irony time. of that, right? The final yeah. day, the final Friday of winter in New York City is going to feel a lot more spring-like than the first days of spring there. Right. Um, let's hop over where we said it was going to be nice and warm in the middle of the country, and we've got a storm in the west and uh, a lot of rain in the lower elevations, higher elevation snows. It's the beginning of what uh, will be a well stormy weekend there, and then we've got uh, some storminess to talk about uh, next week too. But talk a little bit about the weekend, uh, all the way from central and northern California up into the Intermountain West. It's going to be bumpy. Yes, uh, exactly, Dean. Uh, we have a system uh, that will be coming on shore over the next uh, twenty-four hours. Of course, this of uh, recording here on Friday early. Uh, it is going to bring some higher elevation snow to the Cascades, um, down through Oregon, uh, maybe even a little bit of shower activity in Northern California. They can use some rain. It's been kind of dry down there. Uh, again, uh, the lull has been pretty significant. This system is the starting system to promote more snow across the Central Rockies later this weekend and then eventually very at the end of the weekend into the start of next week we could be looking at a bigger system evolving for the eastern uh, uh, front, actually the front range into the eastern Rockies uh, coming up. And uh, we could be measuring in some spots in feet of snow. Yeah, that's uh, all eyes on this system that, you know, the first energy goes into the Intermountain West. And then, as it often does, you start to form a low in the lee of the Rockies in the center of the country. And then this thing looks like it's uh, in the modeling gathering a lot of strength. And so as we head into the middle and end of next week, we could have a monster storm in the middle of the country. And this time of year, Paul, that can mean <laughs> amazing differences, blizzard conditions on the northern flank. And then you've got a southern flank that could have days of severe weather, two, three, four days where the severe weather just kind of moves about three, 400 miles in its, in its, uh, in its position. And all of those days have bad situations where it's going to be. So this is going to be a week next week, or especially in the middle of the country. And then up into the Northeast towards the end of the week, we're going to have to watch some things. And this is exactly the reason why I made a comment and, and I was quoted on this, that this storm will be one of the worst of 2022 so far, as far as the longevity of severe weather and the second part of it, the multiple factors involved with this system. And the large area that it's going to be covering too. Uh, the every, exactly. Right. So, so in terms of the overall monumental aspects of the storm as a whole, that's where the basis of that comment is. Exactly. I mean, there can be severe weather events smaller that could produce a lot more damage and a lot more uh, a serious situation beyond this. But as far as the type of system that we're looking at, it, it just to me has the, the look of it. Now, granted, I can see a lull. We've seen this before. When you have these long, severe weather events, there may be some lull period on Wednesday during the system. We'll break it down uh, west to east for you in a second. But I do feel that the period on Tuesday could be the worst that we see out of this event as far as severe weather goes. And that's going to take uh, much of the Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Western Tennessee area. So uh, be on alert for that. Yeah, that's when it looks like that storm really starts to wrap up and, and get really closed off. And so, yeah, I think, you know, we're starting to look at um, the day 
uh, late Monday into Tuesday for hanging back Texas and up into places like Kansas and Oklahoma. And then you take that next step on Tuesday and you're moved it about a couple of hundred miles east, Louisiana, Mississippi, and up into uh, places like uh, Tennessee and Kentucky. And then you fast forward uh, one day to Wednesday, and now you're talking about the lines probably somewhere in the northern panhandle of Florida up into the Delmarva, and it keeps marching on all the while that northern flank has uh, snow and problems and yeah, it's not going to be a fun week. Uh, we did have a little bit of a lull this week, uh, which was good in <laughs> yeah. the weather office. We all breathed a little bit the last week and a right. half or so. But this is going to be a stormy week. And we've seen these all uh, for a while here. We get uh, some lull and then we get these multi-day storms that take a while to track. And and mm-hmm. how many times have we seen certain places, especially on the wintry side, I have a couple of days where it's off and on snowing. And we could see that again on the northern flank in the northern plains middle of the week. And keep in mind, I, I think others are a little more cautious on this. And the reason, and, and, and granted wise, is because this is not just one system completely. There's other multiple factors coming into the system to keep it going. Uh, there's other features that have to dive down, especially that end of the period, Thursday into Friday. A northern branch feature comes in and merges with it to cause another influx of severe weather. So, there's still a lot of pieces on the table there that have to come together. And I think that's the reason why, like the Storm Prediction Center is a little more cautious. Just they have to see all the pieces, but they're 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 even going out pretty far as well on this. Right, yeah. When I see them doing it, it builds my confidence, too, on it as well. So I think that's what folks have to understand with meteorology and 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 plan it on their own volition. When we're looking and telling you things three, four, five days out, those areas shouldn't be set in stone in your mind. I think those are good generalities of where we think the, the thing is. But as you're getting closer to the event, you need to keep keeping yourself informed. With We get better information. We can highlight it and, and bring in you know, more uh, clarity and, and timing and, and, and make it so. So, But I think it's a pretty good heads up if you're in the middle of the country, especially in areas that are used to severe weather. This is going to be a, a situation that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you've got to keep your ears and eyes locked to AccuWeather and AccuWeather.com for the latest information. Yeah, and Dean, a lot of people are traveling this time right. of the year. So, we, you know, it, it's something just to keep in the back of mind. I, I'm not saying you change your plans, but you should know what's coming to that area possibly uh, during that time period and have a plan uh, just in case this all comes together like it's supposed to and uh, you'll be ready. And you were talking about the snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even there, the front end of the system has been changing on the forecast models a little bit. We're not quite sure how much Denver on north is going to get. Some of the trends of the models have been a little bit farther south with the system and kind of takes Denver out of the very heavy snowfall where yesterday they were in the, you know, foot or possibly more situation. So that area should start up, I think, late weekend into Monday morning with the snow. And it could be blizzard conditions there for a little while. And then that system, then we start talking about severe weather after that uh, farther south. Uh, Certainly. uh Severe weather uh, situation. Um, we've got uh, some information on that in our previous spring episode, uh, episode uh, number two, after we talked to you in episode number one of our spring with uh, how to get that plan together with our friend Tom Bedard uh, and company. And look, I just want to get it before we run out of time here, a couple of thoughts past next week. I know that there was one thought as we get closer to April, that there was going to be a surge of cold air into the Northeast over the beginning of April. Is that something that you're still seeing signs of? 
I'm just asking for my garden and the things that I want to start <laughs> doing so I don't waste any time? Or do I need to get the burlap out for some of these place and flowering shrubs that are going to probably be starting to bud a little bit? And then I may need to protect. Is is that something that we're still in the in the in the offing here? Oh, it's still on the table. It's just a matter of how much there's there's a piece that goes into the northern plains, there's a piece that goes into the northern east northeast, and it's late March into the start of April. It's on there. And even the polar vortex is actually split oh, and it's going into its funky details again, uh, as far as stretching out and possibly, you know, kind of getting involved a little bit here to end the polar vortex season, basically. But it's 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 one of those things you, you still got to wait and watch because there's still mixed thoughts on how cold it could get in the Northeast. We still feel, based on what we've looked at, research and analog data, that there's still opportunities for some more chill and ups and downs going into April, Dean. So don't yes. rule out snow in places like Pittsburgh yep. or Scranton or you know, upstate New York. It, right, it, it where can we still live, happen. Right? Yeah. Hey, uh, when you talked about the funky uh, polar vortex, I thought you were going to break out into tone loke there. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, my friend, that's a, a good overview of the weather for the upcoming weekend and week beyond. And we'll keep an eye on that uh, cold surge in uh, the end of the month and into April and everything else under the sun in the long range forecast. We'll keep folks up to date. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. One thing that Paul wanted me to mention uh, was that the water temperatures over a vast majority of the Gulf of Mexico are exceedingly warm right now. And so that's another reason that we're concerned about that playing into the strength of the severe weather uh, that was ahead of this upcoming week. All that Gulf moisture and warmth coming up, being pulled up ahead of these big storms. And then obviously, too, that kind of translates farther down the line with the potential for an earlier start to hurricane season, especially in that warm Gulf. Things we're going to keep an eye on here. And we'll talk more about with our tropical systems experts and certainly Paul going forward. Friends, that's going to do it for our busy episode as we celebrate spring. Hope that you enjoy your spring arrival weekend. Some areas are going to have better weather than not. You can always keep your Life weatherproof to the max by checking in with our AccuWeather.com app. You can tell hourly temperatures, how it's going to feel. You know, sometimes in the sun, 55 feels a lot better than a windy 65 just because of the way it works out with the sun and the wind. So watch those things and watch uh, this spring, the volatility of the weather unfold in your life. And you can keep ahead of the storms on your app, AccuWeather.com. Our website and our AccuWeather Network, our AccuWeather Now presentation on over-the-top services as well, and all of our great media partners across the world, and I'm really so fortunate to be on many of our great radio stations as well. Friends, it's been a pleasure for all of our hundreds of team members across the world who work hard to keep your life weatherproofed every day. I thank you for listening, and I thank my executive production team of Kim Prell and Andrew Robb for their help as well. For all of us from AccuWeather, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week, our next episode of Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review Everything Under the Sun on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And of course, if you have an idea for a future podcast, just email us at AccuWeather.podcast at AccuWeather.com. 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 